At a certain point in their life, a chicken stops laying very many eggs. You have two options then. They can become a pet or they can become soup. In today's show, I choose the second. From KBBI in Homer, Alaska, my name's Jeff Lockwood and it's time to check the pantry. Making soup wasn't the original cooking method. Grilling over an open flame came first. Once pottery came along, though, soup became possible, and with it, the possibility of combining different flavors into one. And it is the combination of flavors that begins to turn a mere diet into a cuisine. Suddenly, even things that aren't great to eat on their own can find a way to contribute a new and interesting flavor to the soup pot. It's probably not worth chasing down, for instance, thyme bushes to eat the tiny leaves on them, but drop a few of those leaves into an earthenware container of liquid, and you have the makings of a reputation for miles around. It cannot have taken long to figure out that dropping the less delectable parts of animal carcasses into the soup pot could turn the very water they cooked in into a valuable food on its own. You could use the resulting liquid as a cooking medium for anything, vegetables, grains, other meats, and improve the flavor. The herbs and spices in your particular area would create something quite different from the broth the next valley over. As time passed, as the structures of your society changed, and as new ingredients became available to you, the characteristics of your soup changed, and you became more technically skilled at manipulating your ingredients. Maybe some were now roasted before they went into the soup. Maybe some were cooked in fat. Maybe some were pureed. Maybe now your method dominated your city. But in the next city over, they did things differently. Maybe over time, your two cities' soups blended together, and now they were distinct from the soups made in the next kingdom. History kept rolling. Your kingdom became an empire, and its conquest transformed the original soup again, and then the empire disintegrates. The soup in all its regions changes. People leave regions for other regions. Their soup goes with them. Glossy food magazines celebrate the soup from this region, then the soup from that. All these soups have a liquid component, and by far, the most common liquid found in every cuisine on earth is water, in which a chicken has been cooked. The best chicken for this purpose, it is universally agreed, is an old hen. So I killed my chickens last night, and I had, well, I still have, <laughs> they're still here, they just need to be dressed, five chickens. One is a Brahma, two gold Wyandots, and one, and two silver Wyandots. They were getting pretty old, for chickens anyway. <laughs> These girls were, I think, four years old, um, something like that, maybe five, 
four, I think, is how old they were, though. They were not really laying in the winter anymore. They're, they weren't from my first batch either, so I didn't really have much sentimental attachment to them. Uh, I had uh, an eight or nine-year-old, I can't even remember how old, uh, Rhode Island Red, was from our very first batch of chickens when we got six chickens a long time ago, and she died this summer of natural causes, which is pretty rare for a domestic chicken. So she had a very long, relatively successful life for a domestic chicken, and uh, she just up and died this year. Obviously, we've had lots of chickens die over the years. If you're gonna, if you're gonna free-range chickens in Alaska, some of them are gonna die. These are some of the ones that I had to take care of myself. It is always, I don't enjoy it at all. I don't enjoy killing. Um, you know, I've <laughs> killed hundreds of thousands of fish over the years and a fair number of birds and some various other critters. And there's nothing about it that I really enjoy, except when it's over. Then you get to cook and eat them. Um, that I do enjoy. So, if you're gonna eat animals, somebody's gotta do it. Although, personally, I don't really have the, I know a lot of people, there's kind of a thing where, you know, some people make a big deal about how, oh, you gotta, you gotta be able to, to look, look death in the eye or some, you know, some whatever. I mean, there's nothing ennobling about this. It's just, I don't think you become a more legitimate meat eater by will, being willing to kill something. Well, the only thing it really does is it does make you have a little bit of an emotional response. I mean, some people don't care. Some people, are, you know, can completely divorce themselves from any feeling at all about it. I can't. Especially when, you know, we did raise these things from chicks. So there's a, there's a certain regret, I guess, that comes along with it. But if you do have any sort of livestock, sooner or later, either you or somebody else is gonna have to, gonna have to kill them. I typically do mine um, early in the morning, occasionally late at night, but usually early in the morning, uh, before the sun comes up. Before the sun comes up and uh, when they're still up on their roosts, I find that they're a lot calmer then. It, it's a little less traumatic for all of us, I think. Because the couple of times that I haven't done that and I've had to chase chickens around, uh, I didn't enjoy it, and I don't think the chicken did either. There's nothing, there's nothing pleasant about about it. Even even fish, you know. Sometimes sometimes when a codfish is looking up at you with those vacant black eyes, you know, it's still <laughs> it's still an animal, it's still dying, and you're still the one doing it. What I'm gonna do with the, these girls is, since they are old, they're not, they're no spring chickens. Is we're gonna make stock with them because you know you could you could braise them if they were a year or two younger maybe I would but the reality of the of the situation is that once a chicken gets about gets past about a year or so they become considerably less delectable so frequently I'll just make some stock out of them you know the meat is really tough and even if you braise them they're intensely flavored I mean the flavor is just unreal but the meat itself is always gonna be pretty chewy. Which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I think, you know, in the States we get really obsessed with tenderness as like the primary quality we look for in meat. Which I, I always kind of feel like that's a residue of our, the English side of our culture, because the English are big into that as well. Tenderness, which whatever, I don't really care about tenderness. 
but this is decidedly chewy. It's not to say that you can't make really delicious food out of it. In fact, I, I, I have before with uh, a rooster that stuck around a little past his usefulness, which reminds me, there, I, there was one chicken I did enjoy killing. You know, the, the exception to the rule that I generally don't enjoy killing things. There was one that quite literally murdered uh, one of my hens, who was in fact, in fact the sister of, well, I don't know about sister, but <laughs> same to the Brahma, just like the one I'm butchering right now. And uh, yeah, he straight up murdered her. He had been kind of aggressive and we had sort of decided, well, I think it's time. And uh, he was sort of in his last day anyway, but my wife called and said he was killing one of the chickens and in an inaccessible location. So I came home and chased him down and I didn't mind killing him. Did not mind that at all. But the rest of them I don't enjoy. One year I did have a chicken, it wasn't that one, that I did make a coca van with, with a rooster. Who was, he was a couple years old. Nice, tough, stringy, perfect for coca van sort of rooster, which is originally what that dish was made for, was that kind of old rooster. He was delicious. And I made the full on, the real version. When I killed him, I caught the blood in a bowl full of vinegar, which is what you gotta do if you wanna keep blood. It keeps the blood from coagulating. Yeah, he, I mean, it was, it was amazing. With, a, with a, the original, this sort of old, old French recipes for coca vin, the sauce is at the very, very end thickened with, uh, with blood, and it's really quite something. So I recommend, maybe we'll do it one of these days, if I ever have another old rooster. It's outlived his usefulness. Today we're just gonna be making stock. You know, usually when I, when I process chickens, I almost always pluck them, and then I keep the skin, usually. In this case, you know, they're, A, they're super old anyway. They're gonna have a lot of flavor that I don't really feel like I need to pluck them and I don't need to keep the skin. I feel a little weird doing it because typically I do like to, uh, you know, get kind of, oh, well, I gotta, I gotta use every part of the chicken and, but these guys, they're just going into stock. They have so much collagen and so much, so much uh, chicken flavor gonna be happening anyway that I don't think I'm gonna miss the skin enough to have to do a pluck job on old birds because old birds are, can be kind of difficult to pluck. The feathers are pretty well set. Even if I lose the skin, I'm still gonna have the feet. It's hard to get chicken feet in the US unless, unless you have a good Mexican or Middle Eastern or Asian, Chinese particularly, or grocery store. We don't really appreciate the chicken foot here. Get him a Nusakaya. I mean, I don't like killing them. I really hate cleaning them. Birds in general. Dealing with feathers is a pain. They get everywhere. Cut out the little gland at the base of the tail. So we're gonna be making these, this stock today with a pressure cooker. The pressure cooker has a number of advantages over making a plain old boiled stock. For one thing, it is way faster. It's gotta come up to pressure and then it's got to release the pressure. But considering that to make a proper stock, it's something like if you want to really extract all the all the gelatin you can out of it, you know, you're talking three, four hours. Pressure cooker is way, way more efficient at extracting the gelatin than 
than a boiled stock because the temperature is higher. When you pull a chicken carcass out of pressure cooker after you've pressure cooked the stock, it crumbles. The bones fall apart. The meat is completely devoid of flavor or any culinary interest at all. Although the dog will probably eat it. Right now she's watching me very intently. She's a puppy. She's 10 months old and this is, I'm guessing this is probably the first chicken she's ever seen being dressed. She's being a very good girl though. And she will probably enjoy whatever tiny bit of flavor is left in the meat when it comes out of the pressure cooker. But the stock that you get is outrageously good. Aside from speed and efficiency, the other biggest big advantage of uh, doing stock in a pressure cooker is that you don't have to use very much water at all. Because in a traditional stock, you know, you'll, you'll often see recipes and they'll call for super, super long cook times. But a lot of what that is, is just evaporating the water so that you maximize the flavor and the body of the leftover stock. Well, with pressure cooker stock, you start, you start out maximized. Like, like when you're making a regular stock, you would fill the pot, you would cover whatever you're making the stock out of with water. It's not gonna cook otherwise. It's not gonna do anything if it's out of the water. It's just gonna kind of steam a little bit and that's it. It's not, you're not gonna extract anything useful, but in a pressure cooker, everything in there is getting cooked. So you're actually gonna be extracting all of the leftover liquid, dissolving and breaking down all the minerals and all of the collagen and all the gelatin, all the, all the gelatin and all the everything is getting extracted under pressure at a much faster rate than it otherwise would more completely. And so you don't need that much water. The water becomes just the medium that all the other stuff dissolves into, which is kind of what you want a stock to be. The other nice thing about, since you don't have to boil it for a long time, is that you don't lose aromatics. And so the, the flavor is like outrageous. It is, it is the most intense, deep chicken flavor that you can imagine. It's really something. The first time I made it, I was just blown away because it was so much easier. The other thing, I keep saying the other thing because there are so many, so many advantages to doing stock in a pressure cooker is that it comes out clearer. And the reason is typically when you make a stock, the traditional way, you wind up skimming it a lot. And what you're doing is you're trying to skim off the proteins and the fat, and then there's always going to be a little fat left over. But the trouble with a, with a stock, particularly a long cooking stock, particularly with something like a chicken, that does have a fair amount of fat in the carcass. When you start, if you let the stock boil for too long, and almost all stock recipes will warn you away from, you know, never let your stock come to a boil for more than, you know, a few minutes, is that it's really easy for boiling fat to become emulsified in the stock, which is bad because it makes the stock cloudy and it also gives it a greasy flavor that isn't as good as a really cleanly made, non-emulsified stock. In a pressure cooker, pressure cooker never boils. So it never has that mechanical action that, that can possibly make the stock cloudy. It just never happens. It's not moving around in there. So it winds up being a much cleaner stock and much clearer than the average, you know, unless you really skim and do a really good job filtering than the average boiled stock, which is good. And in fact, if you make a consomme out of one of these chicken stocks, it's fairly easy. And it's a magnificent, magnificent consomme because you start out with a very clean stock. And we might make consomme one day, but we're not gonna do it today. It's a long process and I'm not in the mood. I think we'll make a potato leek soup, I think is what we're gonna make once we get this stock together. Cause I got a lot of potatoes and a lot of leeks. I'm gonna go ahead and keep cleaning chickens. I'll be back once it's time to make the stock and then we'll make a soup after that.
All right, hopefully I got the dog pacified for a little bit with some doggy boudin. <laughs> I had a little cooked leftover rice and uh, put this chicken liver in there, heat it all up for her, stuffed it into a toy. And uh, hopefully she stays out of my hair for a little bit because she's very intrigued in these proceedings. Anyway, like I said, I hate processing poultry. I hate it almost as much as I hate having to kill the birds. Maybe even more, honestly. In a selfish way, more, I guess. Right now I got a big pot of water boiling, and the reason I'm doing this is old, uh, old recipes for stock almost always call for a scald before you actually make the stock, and I rarely do it anymore. And a scald is, is where you're gonna cook the chicken briefly in some boiling water just to kind of coagulate some of the proteins on the outside and get any nastiness and stuff that's that's on the outside. You're, you're trying to mostly get it off, basically. Um, in theory, it makes for a cleaner product at the end. In practice, I don't do it very much with industrial chickens, mostly because they're very, very clean to begin with. So I don't really find a whole lot of uh, scum or nastiness, but for backyard chickens and for any small industry chickens, it still is probably a good idea just to help clean them off a little bit and to get any extra little bits of feathers and any nastiness kind of stuck to the outside off. I hate processing poultry because feathers just get everywhere. That's really the only bad part is the feathers. Although chickens are not near as bad as ducks, oh man. <laughs> Although ducks, ducks are a lot easier if you use wax, I will say that. Duck wax is pretty awesome. So, I'm just giving these guys a dunk, and once they're dunked, I should be able to clean off the last, any last feathers stuck to them. You know, you want to get rid of as many of them as you can. I've definitely, some feathers have found my way into these stocks before, and they're not like, they don't like destroy the flavor or anything like that, so. Don't stress too much about getting every last one of them out. But you do want to try to get most of them. And if you're cooking for the queen, get them all. I've cut off my feet here too, because the feet I am gonna boil separately for a little while longer, because these are backyard free range chickens. They've been walking through a lot of stuff their whole life, and their feet are pretty nasty. I'm gonna dunk the feet in some water, to which I've added a little bit of vinegar, uh, and I'm bringing that to a boil, and I'm just gonna drop them in there and scald them for probably two, three minutes. And then I'll pull them out, and I'll give them a little bit of a scrub, just to make sure that we've got, got everything off of them. So there's my skull done. A few more of the feathers off. I hate plucking chickens. I just hate it. Got my pressure canner. He's ready to go. And this is a this is a big pressure canner. You can do this in small pots too if you're only doing one or two chickens. This one will nicely fit five or six. And I have five here. And I don't fill, I don't put any water in the pressure canner until I know approximately how much chicken I have. Now I'm gonna start my last bit of processing, which will be cutting the chickens up so that they'll pack in there more neatly. We wanna sort of layer them in there instead of just have a bunch of whole chickens. And I like to do it this way, just so I can cut all the pieces off, clean off any last feathers that I have. And it's, all we're doing is cutting them up. If you've ever cut up a chicken, that's what we're doing. We are there. I have now got a big pressure canner this is, uh, I can't remember exactly how big it is. I want to say it's like 20 quarts, something like that. Five gallons, maybe a little less. 
16 quarts maybe, I forget. Uh, it's big. <laughs> it's a sizable one for sure. And I've got it a little over halfway full of chicken pieces. So now I just need to add my water. It's so tightly packed in there that it takes the water takes the water a little bit to distribute itself. So that's about halfway up, which is a nice amount of water. The water level in here will uh, actually increase just a little bit because the water in the chicken, after it gets going, the water in the chicken will come out. It'll draw all that water out. And, uh, It'll actually raise the water level a little bit. So I got my lid for my pressure canner here. My little release valve. Make sure everything's working. I love this thing. All right, so we're on. With this, I'm going to bring this up to 11 PSI and cook it. Once it hits 11, I'm gonna hold it right at 11 for about 45 minutes. So this one, this one works really simple. Got a little valve. Once the valve pops up, it'll start pressurizing. And once it gets up to 10 or to 11 PSI, then I will turn it. Then I just got to kind of regulate it. You know, this is a stovetop one. If you're one of those people with a nice uh, electric pressure canner, then you can just walk away and forget it. But with these, you got to, you got to pay attention. So you don't overpressurize or underpressurize or any of that stuff. It's not like the old days though. They're, they're, these aren't, these aren't really scary anymore. Where the old days they could blow up and <laughs> these, they've got the safety valves or the safety features pretty well dialed in now. So you don't really have to worry too much about blowing them up, but you still do have to pay attention. You know, you can't just, you can't put something in your pressure cooker and just walk away. Unless, again, it's an electric one with thermostats and controls and all that stuff. So I'm here for a little bit and uh, trying to think if there's anything else to say about this part. Because it's not, this is kind of not the most exciting part of this whole process. Um, oh, one thing I will say is when I, I forgot to mention during the, uh, the foot part when I was scalding the chicken feed. That in addition to being able to, to, you know, it knocks off a lot of the dirt, but it also loosens the outside skin. You can peel off, assuming you've scalded it long enough, you can peel the outside skin and the nails off, and that gets down to stuff that's totally clean. So you don't have to worry too much about, uh, occasionally a little, a little more dirt will get all the, penetrate the skin, but it comes off pretty easy. It's pretty scaly. When your kids ask, hey, where are the dinosaurs now? They didn't go extinct. They turned into chickens. Some people say it's a come down, but <laughs> I don't think so. Anyway, this pressure cooker stock, I gotta walk away. I'll go ahead and uh, I'm not gonna stand here for 45 minutes and narrate every moment of the, of the process because at this point it's pretty straightforward. I will say um, that the only thing that I have in here is chicken. And this is, most chicken stock recipes will use onion, celery, you know, other, you know, uh, carrots, mirepoix, sometimes herbs. I don't do that very often, mostly because I kind of feel like chicken stock should be a pretty neutral, like a chicken flavored thing. If I know what I'm going to make, then I'll make, then I'll add more ingredients to it. But, and I'm really not a big fan of the <laughs> stock making school. That's just like, take all your garbage and throw it in there and somehow that generates a really nice flavor. I don't know. I always feel like the more random stuff you put in there, the more it just kind of starts tasting like dishwater. Or it just has that brown, sort of that indistinct flavor. 
you know, where it's just kind of vaguely stock. I like to use a lot of chicken, mostly, and then it tastes like a chicken stock. It doesn't taste like chicken stock with some, you know, watery onions in it. It's well-made, of course, a really good stock that's well-made with, you know, where you've really gone to a lot of trouble with roasting ingredients and putting in some work with all that that is used as kind of the star of a dish absolutely makes sense. If you're making like pho or something like that, where all that, all that, all those components, all that, the herbs and the various flavorings that are going into it are part of the end product of the dish, like you're looking for a specific flavor profile, then yeah, go nuts, throw them in there. But for something like this, that I want to be a versatile ingredient that I can just keep around and use, like, oh, I'm, I'm making, you know, pork chops tonight. I need a little sauce to go with it. Well, I can take a couple of what will wind up being cubes of this stuff because this stuff is going to be very, very firm. It's I, I added a little more water than than would make a real uh, a full-on gloss. Uh, if I used a little bit less water, I would probably wind up with a gloss. And I might actually, I might still with this because these are old chickens and there's tons and tons of gelatin that we're going to convert. So I might actually get something that's resembling almost a hockey puck which is very intense and super flavorful, and you can just use a little spoonful of that, and it will finish out a sauce amazingly. You know, <laughs> nobody uses veal stock that much anymore unless you're like in a hardcore French kitchen because veal is, even veal bones are not basically free like they used to be. But that, that depth of texture, that silky texture that you get from a very, very firm jellied stock is still amazing. And this will get you there. And then if you don't want to have that texture, if you want to make a soup, which we're going to do, a potato leek soup later, then you just add some stock and some water to whatever texture and whatever flavor you're looking for. So it's basically, it's kind of like having a jar of that, of the, the pre-made demi-gloss or like bouillon cubes or something like that. It's kind of like having that laying around, except it's way better. So that's what this is designed to be. This is supposed to be a very simple, very basic chicken forward stock. And I'm not throwing anything else but chicken. I'm not salting it. Never ever salt your stocks because if you're gonna reduce it, you can very easily end up with something that's over salty. Although in this case, you're gonna start with something that's so reduced that you, it almost wouldn't matter. But I still, I don't salt my stocks ever. It is, it's an ingredient that's designed to be used later. The other thing about pressure cooking, and I, I, I just thought about it because I mentioned roasting the vegetables and roasting uh, the chicken to make like a brown chicken stock. You, get, you actually get browning, caramelization, Maillard reaction going on in this pressure cooker pot because you're cooking we're going to be cooking at right around 240 degrees which is in fact past the point where the maillard reaction starts to occur so these proteins will be browning a little bit it's not to the same extent as it would in an oven it's not going to have the same sort of roasted flavor but it will be rich it will be much browner if you've ever made like i mean my standard chicken stock you know if i bought a chicken and I've cut it all up and I'm using the, the bits for other stuff and then I just make a stock with whatever's left over. I almost always just make a white stock, just a plain white chicken stock. Poach the chicken in the water for, you know, a couple hours or whatever. So you get a nice brothy stuff and it's good. This is not gonna be that. This is going to have a distinct golden flavor or golden color and a distinct roasty flavor and aroma 
to it that you don't get in a white stock, but you do get in these because a pressure cooker can initiate the Maillard reaction even on wet ingredients. Typically we think, oh, if we're gonna, if we're gonna brown, brown something, we have to do it in a dry heat, in a dry environment, but a pressure cooker can do it in a wet environment because of complicated science reasons. <laughs> um, it basically because 212 degrees is as hot as you can get in a non-pressurized environment and that is not hot enough to really do Maillard uh, browning at all. But 240, it's happening there. It happens slower, it doesn't happen as quickly as it would in a dry environment at a much higher heat, but it's definitely happening. We are gonna get something that is much closer to a roasted chicken stock. We just didn't have to go through the trouble of roasting the chickens. And the whole thing, it seems kind of like it's a pain because it took me all this time to get the chickens cleaned and everything, but I'm starting with chickens that still had the feathers on. So <laughs> there's a lot of processing involved. If I had started with, with uh, already dressed chickens, we would have been done a long time ago. It'd be cooling out on the front porch right now. I'd be thinking about making soup with it. It's a really, really fast process, much faster and much simpler than making it the old fashioned way. And honestly, the result is better. Making, making stock in the pressure cooker is great for stuff like moose or for beef, things that, that do have a lot of bone because that bone, it does contain a lot of gelatin or a lot of collagen. It's just in a form that takes forever to convert into gelatin, to dissolve into the water. It takes a long time to release it, unless you do it under pressure. And then it takes a lot less time. We're talking like, you know, a beef stock or a veal stock or, you know, a moose stock, something that you're gonna be, you're gonna want to extract as much of that textural, that body, that gelatin out of the bones as you possibly can. Something like that, you can easily cook that for 12 hours or more uh, boiling. You'd, you might start at an hour and a half. When I used to make pork stock, I, I always started at an, I did an hour and a half for pork stock. And uh, beef, I would, or moose, or any older animals, uh, particularly ones that is primarily bone that you've got, uh, I would definitely up it a little bit to maybe two, two and a half hours. You might want to start checking it there. I think the last time I did it, I did it about two and a half hours. Um, and again, it's the same deal with this chicken stock. The bones just crumble and the stock itself is insanely rich and insanely, it's, it's hard, you know, it, it makes jello when you're done, which is kind of the hallmark of a really great stock. Once you make stock in a pressure cooker, for a batch of any size, you're never gonna go back because I think it's better. It's a better product and it's an easier process. It's smoother, it's faster and it's better. So <laughs> why, even, why even bother with the other way? unless you just don't want to drag out the pressure cooker that day, which happens. But today, for these chickens who gave me eggs for four years, well, <laughs> two years and then a couple of summers, because after a couple of years, they, they kind of don't lay very much in the winter. For these, uh, for these chickens, you know, I feel like, I feel like you, should, you should honor them a little bit, you know? If you're gonna kill something and eat it, you should at least try to do it right. Try to make them as good as you can possibly do. So that's what we're doing here today. And we're doing it in a pressure cooker. And I'm betting from the way that it sounds that the little valve is gonna pop pretty soon. And there it goes.
We will now begin to pressurize and let this happen. So the pressure has released, the weight has gone down, and it's time to pull the stock and start to filter it. So pull the top off. Oh, wow. Oh, man. <laughs> it's so, so intense right now. I mean, this is like the chickeniest chicken stock that ever chickened. Wow. You can see there's all this brown fat up at the top. But honestly, though, you know, I think I could let this go for another... I think I could let this go for another 40. Got some more stuff that could come out of this. I'm going to let it go again. While it's still hot. What I'm looking for, remember, everything to be completely extracted. And in this case, we still have a little more to go. It might be because these chickens are so old. So I'm going to give it probably another half hour under pressure, maybe 45 minutes. As long as you don't really go nuts and do this for hours and hours and hours, it's really hard to overcook it. So I'm going to let it go a little longer. I might as well. It's still hot. It won't take long to get back up to pressure. I'm just going to let it keep going. The feet still have quite a bit of integrity. They're actually, a, they're a really good uh, sign. Once the feet, like you touch them and they sort of fall apart, that means that you've extracted basically all of the collagen, converted it into gelatin that's in there. So I think it's got a little ways to go, honestly. But this won't take very long. It's still hot, so it should bounce right back up to pressure. All right, my chicken stock is beautifully cooled after sitting overnight on the porch in this very cool weather. So I did wind up doing 45 more minutes. And now I am performing the final step in this chicken stock preparation, which is I have this beautiful yellow layer of the usual term for it is schmaltz, which is a Yiddish word. I believe it's Yiddish for chicken fat. And this like all animal fats, will be a magnificent cooking medium, particularly for frying. Kind of a little more flavorful than duck fat. It's really chickeny. One of the differences between chicken fat and a lot of other animal fats is that chicken fat carries a lot of chicken flavor. You know, pork fat's very neutral. Duck fat's pretty neutral too. Chicken fat definitely has some flavor to it. And this stuff is bright yellow because these are, I mean, these, <laughs> these are four-year-old chickens. So they're pretty old anyway. And they've had a diet of lots of bugs and lots of greenery and i have got a very generous amount of fat coming off of here underneath this fat is this beautiful gelatinous layer just jiggling away and again when you're making this in the pressure cooker you can really control how how firm your final result is going to be just by how much water you put in you know you don't have to fill it don't have to bury the bones in the water so if you just use a really minimal amount of water you can get a really hard gloss right off the bat in this case what i have is a beautiful jelloed jellied stock and uh it's not a it's not a full-on gloss but it's definitely jello and it's extremely lovely and i am getting pretty much a solid ninth pan out of uh out of this thing which uh what's the measurement here i want to say it's like a pint 
I'm gonna say a ninth pan is a pint. I don't think it's a full quart. I can't remember now. It's a lot of beautiful, creamy yellow fat. And then this magnificent, intensely chickeny, intensely aromatic stock. It's also very clear. I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna take a little spoonful out of here. It's a beautiful aspic. One of these days we'll make some aspic and not the crappy kind we all know with jello, but like eggs and aspic or something like that. Oh man, it's so nice. It's very clear, very firm to the touch. Mmm. Oh man, that is intensely chickeny. I mean, there is no mistaking what that is. That is delicious. That's good. That's really good. I really, really think that there's not a better way to make stock but in the pressure cooker. It's so light, but it's got that roasted flavor too because it's not that light white chicken stock flavor. It's really delicious, even cold and gelled. So the next thing to do now is to make potato leek soup. To make potato leek soup, we obviously need two ingredients. We need potatoes and leeks. And these are leeks from my garden. I grow quite a few leeks and I'm probably going to grow more every year because I like leeks and they're hard to find and expensive at the store and they keep reasonably well. They're easy to grow. They do pretty well and uh, they taste good. So I'll be probably growing quite a few more leeks. Uh, these are the last of mine, unfortunately, but this potato leek soup it will be a worthy use for the last little bit of my leeks. So after you peel the outer layer of the leeks, then I go through and I cut the very top off. I don't want to cut too far down into the green just yet because there's a lot of usable leek inside the, the green part. And then I just cut the roots off as close to as close to the end as I could, the, the base of the leek. And my actual leek method for cutting leeks, I picked up from watching Jacques Pepin. In fact, if you really want to learn how to cook, stop listening to this show and just go watch a bunch of Jacques Pepin and you will pick up a whole lot. But the way that Jacques Pepin cuts his leeks is to start because, you know, some people, a lot of people say, oh, you only want to use the white part. Well, that's not really true. There's a lot of flavor in the green part. The trouble is the green part is where it starts to dry out. But if you get the bottom maybe half inch of solid green, you know, before it turns leathery, uh, then there's a lot of, of really intense leek flavor in there. The white part is very, very mild. The more green gets into it, the more of a, of a powerful leek flavor there is. So what he does, what I learned from him, is to hold the leaf in your left hand and get to a little before the point where the green starts turning leathery and just gently spin the leek on your knife blade. And what you're trying to do is basically cut the first couple of leaves and leave the ones underneath it intact. And so when you peel off the first couple of leaves, all of a sudden you have a much paler green. And now you can get another maybe three quarters of an inch, it depends on the leek. You can go a little higher up on the leek and you'll get a little extra. It's much less wasteful than just hacking off, you know, where it starts to get green and leathery. You can get a fair amount of extra leak out of it. It is an excellent idea. I highly recommend that you do it. Get the maximum yield and you want to get as much of the deliciousness as you can. So one thing I'll say before we really get too far into this, and this is certainly something that I always kind of thought immediately when I was when I was younger, we're not making vichyssoise. Vichyssoise is not a generic potato leek soup. Vichyssoise is a very specific potato leek soup. 
Vichyssoise was in fact invented in the U.S. at the Ritz-Carlton, I believe, if I remember correctly. Vichyssoise is a potato leek soup, but it's served chilled, is the, the one difference. The second is that it's enriched with cream. That is not the kind of potato leek soup that we are making. We are making a very simple, very basic, almost an elemental soup. This soup, they've probably been making this soup in France as long as they've had potatoes. In fact, in, in uh, Emile Zola's Germinal, which is a 19th century novel about a miner strike in, in uh, northern France, the main thing that the miners eat, at least the miner family that he's depicting in the in the novel, the main thing that they live on is leek soup with potatoes when when the potatoes are ready. And that's part of the impetus for the miner strike that happens is that gradually there is less leeks and potatoes in the potato leek soup. And it's 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 a great soup because it's such humble ingredients and you don't really it's not complicated to make. Almost all the time that I make it, there's four ingredients. There's leeks, potatoes, salt, and water or chicken stock, or a combination of both. It doesn't really need much else. You know, maybe some black pepper. But even without the black pepper, it's still really good. Leeks have such a such a dynamic flavor. They're so complex. They're, they're the most complex onion, I think. They can be mild, but they also have kind of a, not I wouldn't say a sharpness to them, but a real distinct kind of pungency that other onions don't have, in my estimation. So I'm a big fan of leeks. And leeks and potatoes are... I mean, <laughs> they're just a classic pairing. They're delicious together. And they also put the lie to the very common thing that all the locavores like to say is their big argument these days, what grows together goes together. I mean, it's true. It, it's definitely true. But leeks and potatoes never grew together until the 1700s. And it turns out they go together really well. You can save the tops. You can put them in a stock if you'd like. They're going to contribute an enormous amount of leek flavor, which may or may not be what you desire in a stock. Mine will probably just go into the compost pile. Um, leeks are notoriously dirty in the middle because of the way that they're grown. You grow them in a trench and pile dirt around them and it's really easy for dirt to get in between the individual leaves. So it is always a good idea to wash your leeks. I bisect them long ways and then I across just rough chop. They don't have to be very nice. They're going to eventually become indistinguishable from each other in the making of this soup. Simple braised leeks, which is actually basically where this soup starts, is one of my favorite side dishes of all time. If you just braise them in a little bit of butter, splash of water, a little wine, let them cook till they're softened up. Goes with anything, literally anything. I mean, you can serve it with fish and you can serve it with a big steak and it'll fit right alongside either one of them. These aren't too dirty on the inside. Obviously a very skillful leek farmer. And in case you're curious, I did sample the uh, leftover chicken meat from the from the stock and it is not something you would really want to eat it's totally flavorless because i've extracted pretty much everything out of it it's basically just piles of flavorless protein right now although it tastes it tastes enough like something that the dog is okay with is extremely okay with eating it so she'll have she'll have snacks for a while been all that time telling her not to eat the chickens and here she is eating the chickens that's the way that the world goes around all right, so I've dumped all these guys in a container, fill the container up with water, swish them around a little, 
Any dirt will sink to the bottom, the leaks will float to the top, and we are ready to go. Now, ordinarily, on a regular potato leek soup kind of day, I would start my, my leeks in butter. But today, since I have all of this beautiful, beautiful schmaltz. When I was younger, I had a trombone teacher named Dr. Schmaltz. That was basically like the perfect name for a trombone teacher. Couldn't make that up. So I'm gonna be kind of generous with the, the schmaltz. I'll give it a couple of nice tablespoons. Roll it around in here. So this is gonna be a very chickeny potato leek soup. A lot of times, like I say, I make it with just water, in which case it, it's a very potato and leek potato leek soup. But today, we'll use the chicken, so we'll get this uh, really depth of chicken flavor to sort of underpin the whole thing. It's gonna be very satisfying. I have, in the past, added chicken to a potato leek soup, you know, chunks of chicken, and honestly, it really doesn't do anything. It isn't that interesting. I wouldn't go out of my way to add chicken to a potato leek soup. The chunks floating around in there, they just don't do much for it. But chicken stock, that does do something for it. On the other hand, what is good in here, if you have some kicking around and you want a, just a little different extra dimension of flavor in your potato leek soup that you're making, ham. Ham is really good in here. Highly recommended. Mushrooms are also quite tasty in potato leek soup. Other than that, I don't really think it needs anything other than potatoes, leeks, salt, and water. And, you know, whatever fat you use to braise your, your leeks in at the beginning. Because leeks, there are definitely things you can do with them raw. But they almost always are going to get cooked to some degree. And braising them in some way is the most common way of doing it. Cooking them down until they're just very, very soft. Because they do have kind of a firm, slightly slightly tough texture until you until you cook them all the way down. They're a little bit on the bland side, raw, I find. The real complexity of flavor in them comes out when you cook them. They're really good roasted too, especially young ones. If you've got some some small leeks, throw them on the, on the grill in the summer. Oh man, so good. Better than green onions, I think, roasted. Just because they have that, that different dimension. Like green onions are all about sharpness and bite. Whereas leeks have that sort of pungent funk to them that none of the other onions quite have. All right, so I got my schmaltz going. I'm just going to take the leeks out a handful at a time up from the water, swirl it around, pick it out, drop them in. Okay, leeks are in. Just going to give them a few minutes in an open pan and then I'm going to cover them and let them cook for about, about a half hour, I think would be good. Generous salt, of course. I want them to be really, really soft. I want all the cellulose in the cell walls to be broken down. I want them to give up all their juices, stew nicely, because leeks, like onions, like all the other alliums, they don't really, after you add the water and you're boiling them, they don't break down as much. They don't get the same kind of soft texture. I mean, all that is is leek, salt, and the schmaltz, and you already get like this sort of intensity between the, the savory, sort of deep, deep, rich umami of the, the schmaltz, and then the sweetness and the sharpness of the leeks. So, I'll go ahead and put my schmaltz in the fridge for future use. And uh, just <laughs> to kind of give you a description, as I've frequently said on the show, one of the things that we talk about is the characteristics of various fats. The schmaltz is at basically at room temperature now. It was outside, it was cold, and even cold, even well below 30, it was still not particularly, it wasn't solid for sure. It was uh, 
It was scoopable. It was like kind of like a soft ice cream almost. Now it is definitely pretty liquid. It runs off the spoon. I can't, it doesn't hold its shape. It's sort of like a pudding right now is roughly what I think you would describe it as. Um, actually even less than a pudding. It's more like a very soft custard sauce. Is, yeah, that's that's pretty much what it looks like. Just as a side note, you know, if, if, if this was the exact same container at the exact same temperature and it was filled with duck fat, that would be not solid at all, but it would, it would have, it would be more firm. It would probably be a little closer to a pudding than, than a custard sauce because duck fat has a little bit more saturated fat than chicken fat does. And then pork fat has more than duck fat and beef fat and lamb fat have more than pork fat. And at the other end of the spectrum, something like seal oil is almost completely unsaturated and is and is a pretty liquid at, at room temperature. So that's a minor fascinating foray into the biochemistry of fats and why we use different fats for different, different culinary purposes. It does matter sometimes. I'm gonna let this leeks stew, braise for a little bit. You know, it wouldn't be inappropriate to add some wine here. Again, I'm a pretty simple man when it comes to potato leek soup. I like it to be potatoes and leeks and not a whole lot else. A little more salt. Always needs a little more salt in the leeks. Potatoes are gonna take up a lot of salt later. Potatoes need a lot of salt to make them taste good. Turn them down to very low. Cover it and we will return. About a half hour later, my leeks have now cooked down into a very soft, pale yellowish green mass. Mmm, delicious smelling. Start thinking about my potatoes. And for the potatoes, before I put the potatoes in, I'm gonna go ahead and get some liquid in the pot so I can just drop them right in. And we'll start out, I'm probably gonna wind up using about half chicken stock and half water. I don't want this to be overwhelmingly chickeny. I might even use a little more water because this is pretty intensely flavored chicken stock. And I don't want this to taste like chicken noodle soup, you know. I'm not looking for an intense, pure chicken flavor. Oh, ooh, there we go. Oh, it's melting very nicely. Plop some big chunks of chicken jello into here. I'm not also not adding all of my liquid right now because I want to get an idea of what the thickness is gonna look like once the once I put the potatoes in. And I like to cut my potatoes for this fairly small, although you can certainly cut them as large or as small as you want. This is potato leek soup. You can cut them big and have big rustic chunks of potatoes. You can cut them small. And I am using these are, I'm using a mix actually of Yukon Golds and Red Fingerlings, which is what I grew in my garden this year. So just, is mo these are mostly reds. And one of the things that will change the texture of this is if you use like a waxy potato that holds its shape really well, like these Red Fingerlings versus a, uh, something that, that is a little fluffier that will sort of dissolve a little bit more into the starch or into the uh, liquid, the starch will dissolve a little more. And instead of getting chunks of potatoes, if you use something like a russet, Yukon Golds hold their shape pretty well, but they will sort of release into the stock as well. So if you use a combination, then you get, you know, some potatoes that'll be a little softer and that will add, contribute a little more uh, body and starch to the to the soup 
make it a little thicker versus something like these fingerlings or a lot of the red potatoes, any of the waxy potatoes, really, that will hold their shape a little better and be more distinct potato chunks in the soup. And I personally prefer my potato soups to be a little more potato chunk as opposed to dissolved potatoes. You know, like the baked potato or cream of potato style is not my favorite of the potato styles. I'd rather have just a chunk. But again, entirely up to you. You'll control a lot of the texture in your potato leek soup by what kind of potatoes you choose and how big you cut them. As far as the ratio of potatoes to leeks, that is entirely up to you. You can use as few or as many potatoes as you would like. Make it as chunky or as thin as you would like. Something else, and this is usually the case with uh, vichyssoise, the other difference, is that typically that'll also be pureed. You can, at the end of this, puree your potato leek soup, run it through food mill or other device, puree the whole thing. But personally, not a huge fan of pureed soups. I like them as a, in very small amounts because what happens to me with pureed soups is that after a few bites, I really get kind of bored with them because they taste the same all the way throughout. You know, the first bite tastes the same as every other bite. Whereas, you know, with this one, you get different textures and different flavors and different things going on. Maybe one bite has a little more leek. Maybe one has a little more broth. Maybe one has a few more potatoes. Maybe the potatoes in this bite are a little chunkier than the ones in the bite before. There's just, there's a little bit, that little bit of variance is what makes, makes you want to eat a little bit more. And with something like a bisque, the first few bites can be incredible. But then after that, you just kind of start chugging through it. At least I am. I'm, I'm totally like that. I get bored. I don't want more than a few spoonfuls of like a, a bisque, no matter how good it is. Plus they're usually really rich too. Consomme is the same way. I love consomme, which is a clarified stock. It's really delicious, but you don't really want more than, <laughs> than a few little sips of it because it's very intense, it's very delicious, and it's also not that exciting once you've tasted the flavor a few times. But certainly not everyone feels that way. So I added a little bit more water, or a little bit of water, period. I've added a few pinches of salt. So we'll let the whole thing come up to a bit of a simmer. And then I'm going to taste it mostly just to make sure that I have a decent salt percentage. And then I just have to let it cook to cook the potatoes. One advantage of the potatoes being cut really small is that they don't take very long to cook. So this will probably be done in 15 minutes once it comes to a simmer, I would imagine. Give it a quick taste just of the broth. See how things are coming together salt-wise. Mmm. Well, that's good. Yeah, that's quite delicious. It's, it's got a strong chicken flavor, chicken stock flavor, but it's not like overwhelmingly, it's not as intense as like a chicken noodle soup. Um, the leeks are very much at the forefront right now. Uh, the level of salt, I'm probably gonna have to add a little more salt uh, at the end, but I'm gonna see what happens here. I'm gonna let that go for a little bit and uh, come back in maybe 15, 20 minutes and we should have a beautiful pot of potato leek soup ready to go. So I just tasted a couple of my bigger chunks of potatoes. Here's another one. And uh, we are right at where I want to be texture-wise. Where the potato still has, it still has some structural integrity. When you mash it against the side, 
of the uh, or attempt to mash it against the side of the pot it gives and it but you do have to apply some force to it and when you taste it there's no raw potato flavor and your teeth you go cleanly through it but there's still it still has structural integrity it's not mushy it's not falling apart easily it's got a really nice potato texture it stays in its original cuboid shape which is what i'm after uh, that's what i want and so at this point i'm just going to give it a couple little extra pinches of salt because i think it needs that can you put herbs in here absolutely you can throw some thyme in some rosemary whatever you desire um again i just find that the that more and more when i want potato leek soup i want a really simple a really basic potato leek soup but it certainly has room for other stuff and in fact i'm always going to give a little pepper i got two pepper grinders one with black pepper and one with white pepper because because that's just how i am oh yeah now nice now at the end stir everything together now there's a nice peppery aromatic and let's give this a taste see if there's see if there's anything else we need hmm Ooh, yeah that's good yeah i'm totally happy with that it'll be really nice as it sits for a little bit everything will sort of blend together but right now it's got a really nice very leak forward flavor um and then the potatoes Let's see, I, that was just some broth. So let's eat some broth with a potato. Just make sure we got all the elements cooking together. Yeah, and then you bite into the potato, you get a strong potato flavor. It doesn't taste necessarily like recognizably chickeny, but there is that sort of full mouth feeling that is the, the intense umami flavor of the chicken stock. So it doesn't taste like a chicken soup, but it's distinctly savory. And that comes from that really well-made chicken stock and as far as soups go i mean honestly this is about as easy as it as it gets you know four ingredients five if you count the schmaltz these are leeks from my garden potatoes from my garden and my very own chickens and uh they did me good for four years they gave me a lot of eggs and then they gave me this beautiful chicken stock of which i still have quite a bit left over some of it's going in the freezer some of it'll get used over the next week or so i tried to do right by them you know you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna raise them and you're gonna kill them, you might as well do something that's worthy of them. And I think uh, I think this soup is. So thanks, ladies. You just keep on giving. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's hosted and produced by Jeff Lockwood. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10 Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Quatuor Ebane. This is the second episode of the fall 2020 season of Check the Pantry. financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI public radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this.
Thank you. 